Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Brenda Dietzman, Shannon Paulson, Maggie Varela, and Kristen Zeman about recruitment and generational differences between women in law enforcement. Thank you to Brenda, Shannon, Maggie, and Kristen for coming on the podcast and sharing with us today. What do you think can be done to make the police profession more enticing to women? Well, I think, I think, you know, especially I think Maggie and, and, and Kristen and Brenda have, have tagged on a lot of these issues. You know, it's, it's the same, the same challenges that, that I think we can apply also to the male generation of today and in, in recruiting and everything else. Um, I think historically, um, going along with the whole male stereotype, a male dominated profession, you know, that traditional role is the paramilitary aspect of law enforcement. And, and don't get me wrong, I think there is a place for that. I think we have to have the structure and the discipline. You know, there are times when we're, we are asking and ordering officers to go into very dangerous situations and we expect them to follow our orders. So, so the paramilitary aspect is important. But the negatives that come from that paramilitary aspect is, you know, I can remember being told uh, jokingly somewhat as a young police officer, if the department wanted you to have a family, they would have issued you one. Um, and, and I think in today's day and age, as we compete against private industry, as we compete to be attractive to this younger generation, we have to understand their priorities. We have to understand that, you know, while I am the most passionate law enforcement officer, I love this career. I believe it was a calling. I did not just choose it as a job or even a career. I, to me, it was a calling. Um, I, I acknowledge that family should come first. I acknowledge that for my people, they are doing this job and making a living to provide for their family. So we cannot, you know, we cannot expect them to put the family second. Um, and so creating an environment or understanding that and, and working things into the workforce and uh, the work environment that continues to acknowledge that um, and, and, you know, promoting that as a recruitment and retention tool or aspect, I think is paramount. I'm not sitting here telling you I have all the answers for that. I just think that we as, you know, as a progressive agency and a progressive profession, you know, need to understand that, that even with the challenges of 24-hour shift work, 365 days a year, and, you know, and, you know, that the, the, the public safety hinges on our officers showing up on time to work every day, we, we have to understand and acknowledge and support um, their family and personal lives. Um, and the only way they will be loyal to us and the agency and the mission is if we have some measure of loyalty to them and that family and personal priority. I think we need to do a lot of things. Um, we need to show the reality of law enforcement and what it actually is, as opposed to, you know, people jumping out of helicopters and, and uh, um, you know, canines all over the place and everyone's a, a CSI type person, right? So I think we need to show that reality. I, 
literally heard about an organization that had like three people in their in their agency and their recruiting poster which I found kind of interesting. They even had a recruiting poster, um, had a helicopter with, with, with like five people rappelling out of it. Um, it. It's just, you know, we need to show the reality of what it is. And then what we need to do is right from the get-go, we need to test um, in, during the hiring process, not only for the physical aspects, which are extremely important because when, you know, everything hits the fan, you've got to be able to perform in that moment. So physical aspects, absolutely, we, we can't lessen those um, uh, for any reason because you have to be able to perform. But there's also that that trick of 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 using you know your your emotional intelligence and, and being able to to talk people into handcuffs as opposed to wrestling them into handcuffs if if at all possible. So do we test that? And if we don't, why not? Because that is um, just as important uh, to be able to do things like that for so many reasons. Um, we have to look at uniforms. Uh, and, you know, we're still not to the point where um, when I left just a few years ago, I was still wearing some male um, uniform parts and pieces because the female uniforms just did not work. I think we need to look at scheduling. Uh, this is not only going to recruit or attract women, but it's also going to recruit just uh, attract uh, generationally. Um, you know, I implemented a flexible schedule in in the facility that I worked with, and people are like, "This is law enforcement; you can't do that." And I'm like, mm, "Hold my beer, watch this." Um, you know, we've got to think about part time jobs. We have to think about doing these things, and we implemented this. It's possible. If you do things the right way, we need to look at childcare. We need to approach some of our childcare um, facilities if we have them within um, the the response areas that we have, and say, you know, could you offer a discount uh, and to our people, or can you do something um, like set up a bulletin board or some sort of social media page or something where other um, law enforcement officers and their families, which we all trust each other, right, um, can look after kids if, if court comes up or if, you know, you're, you're long on a shift or something like that. So there's that network before you need it, right? We need to be doing these things, not only to attract women, but to attract people in general. I'm going to add a little bit to that. I know, uh, for example, in my um, department, we have uh, a lot of two cop families. Uh, so think about that dynamic. And I'm just going to use the example of emergency situations. When it's a, every day, your schedule, they have to work their schedule around. So hopefully they can spend either some time together and also spend some time with the family, right? Uh, but I'm thinking about our emergency situations. Like every time we have a hurricane uh, warning or hurricane watch, uh, me as a commander, I would have to sort out my two cop families uh, in my district or in my in my bureau to identify what works out better for them. Uh, yes, maybe it's not fair for the other people that are single and I, and I understand that, but there has to be something in the system in place that is not only gonna help out the single people with whatever issues they may have in their family or friends or extension, but also those two cop families that have kids. And now we're gonna be going into Alpha Bravo working 12 hour shifts 
you know, how are we going to make this work so that one of them can drop off the kids, the other one can pick it up, and we're still working, being able to to uh, have that uh, position covered, right? Um, because as Brenda was saying, you know, child care, we need to, to do all these things and kind of evolve police work. But we have to think of it as a business. We want to attract these individuals. We want to retain these individuals, and we want them to be committed. So what can we do as law enforcement to make it more like the private sector that listen, there's bonuses, there's extra days off, there's all these perks that they get, you know, and our law enforcement officers is like, listen, I can't complain. We have really good benefits and we have a great retirement. But on my day to day operations, what can I do as law enforcement to help that individual or that family to still be committed and know that we are there for them so that they can be more for us? in their scheduling. Uh, like Brenda said, maybe I'll try to do some shift work uh, for officers. Temporary, maybe it doesn't have to be permanent. Maybe it can be temporary part-time work while they're going through whatever they're going through. Uh, sometimes that's not even thought of in law enforcement. It's like, no, it is a paramilitary. If you're gonna be working, you're coming to work. I don't care what's happening in your life. When you're here, you belong to me. And I get that. And that is needed uh, to a certain point. However, we really need to come up with some innovative ways, especially in today's world. In today's world, it's basically the cops. It's us against the whole world. Uh, sometimes that's what it feels like sometimes. Uh, so we want to make them feel secure and we want to make them feel appreciated. And we want to make them feel like, listen, we really do got your back. Uh, it's not just a little bumper sticker we're putting in. Our, we really do. What can we do to make you feel that we really do have your back for you and for your family? And the only thing that I'll add to that um, is that we absolutely have to reimagine the way we look at things. We are so traditional minded and naturally, you know, we have to respond to 911 calls. You know, we don't have the luxury of letting people, you know, make their own hours and, you know, work when they want because, you know, calls have to be answered. But COVID taught me in my department when we sent all of our detectives home uh, with laptops and VPNs and we thought, is this going to work? And they were more productive. And, and so for me, that changed my entire paradigm that, oh, you've got to be at, at work. No, you can make those contacts, you know, by phone and by Zoom. And so, you know, I think we're a little bit behind the curve um, uh, than corporate America. So I think there are other ways. Um, and the other is, you know, I'll use the Illinois State Police that does a great job at, um, at recruitment. And, and it kind of goes back to what I said before about visibility matters. And um, the Illinois State Police showcases females, uh, troopers with their families, you know, with their kids, if they if they choose to, you know, like this is a mom, this is a soccer mom. And then that, it, that affords a female to be able to say, oh my gosh, she's a mom and, you know, she has a partner and, you know, and I can do this. So I, I really do think that we're, we really have that gap of detachment as I don't think I can do that until we can actually see it um, in practice. So that's the only thing. The, and the other thing I would say, and this is not something that we can do to, to make the profession more enticing, but as it comes to um, promoting, and I just, I am so, I get so frustrated with the amount of conversations I have with women who say they can't promote because their partner doesn't do their share. I don't know when this lesson comes into play, but I think the most important thing we can teach girls is that the the, the most important business decision that they will make in their life is the partner that they choose to spend their life with. That partner that says your career is just as important as my career and I've got your back 50-50. But I find that there's 
such a, it's just so disparaging um, with the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the females who, who take on the bulk of the work at home. And I wish I could just tell every little girl coming up in life, you know, pick your partner wisely. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what are the characteristics of effective recruitment and retention programs with respect to women? Well, I think Brenda hit on a couple of them. Uh, I, I think we need to have, we need to project a reality. Um, when you're talking about retention, um, we can't be selling a, a, a bad bill of goods. Um, so, you know, and, and while there should be, you know, police departments should be a reflection of, of a cross section of society in general. And, and that includes from, you know, it, it takes all kinds. It will take all kinds of men and women with all kinds of skill sets and experiences and characteristics and everything else. That being said, there are some um, populations that could have more success or could be more willing to consider law enforcement as a profession, you know, uh, just given, you know, the, 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 the kind of type A personality that, that, you know, could be, uh, you know, an advantage in this line of work. Um, the, the physical challenges that exist in this line of work, unlike many others, you know, you are looking for women who are, you know, outgoing, uh, you know, possibly athletic in nature. So you can see where your recruiting efforts, at least to get the best bang for your buck, could be focused in some of those areas. Um, you know, college athletics, people mustering out of the military, that sort of thing. Um, you, you could, especially among the, amongst the female population, have a better chance of recruiting people who are more likely to make it through the academy more likely to embrace the challenges of law enforcement when they hit the streets in their probationary year, that sort of thing. That's not to say to the exclusion of others, um, but it, it wouldn't hurt to concentrate some effort in those areas. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, it does need to be a reality check. It, it's your, your weight. When you look at the fact that, you know, in the Los Angeles Police Department, by the time an officer gets off probation, we've invested probably close to a quarter of a million dollars in them, okay? Between recruit training, their 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 pay for the year and a half of, of uh, training and probation and, and equipment and everything else, um, it's it's well, well into, you know, one and a half, uh, you know, uh, uh, $150,000 or more. So with that in mind, we have to, you know, it'd be irresponsible as us of, as fiduciaries of, of the taxpayer's dollar um, you know, to not focus on some retention issues. And, and that means don't sell them a, a bad bill of goods. Law enforcement is always, not always sexy. Law enforcement does tend to be a flashpoint of societal change, political controversy, et cetera. That is reality. Um, you will see things that you 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 don't always want to see. You will encounter some of the ugliest of human nature. Um, you know, and I've talked to people who are like, well, I just want to be a detective. I just want to go and be a detective and work on whatever. You know, if if you're recruiting for an agency like mine, you you have to, they they have to accept the fact that before you ever can even are eligible to test for detective, you are going to do multiple years pushing a black and white you know, embrace that. And we expect you to be good at that. We expect you to embrace that mission. 
that is reality. I am not recruiting a detective. I'm recruiting a police officer who has the potential in the future to be a detective. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, again, to, to Brenda's prior point, I, I think that is that is huge because we we lose people after two, three, and four years um, who, you know, just just can't rectify the role with what they thought it was. Um, it's it's a little too much and too many in in certain ugly areas. Or they're at the point now where they they are looking at a family and and it's not conducive to a family. We've touched on this a little bit, but um, what are some of the generational differences that you've noticed in women in law enforcement, and how can these younger generations be better served? I don't I, I don't know. This is sort of goes back to you know are females better police officers? I, I, I hate to generalize because just when I think I have the next generation figured out, you know, it, they just they surprise me. Uh, you know, there. I, I think that we we get into dangerous territory when we take you know one particular generation, you know, the Ys, the Zs, you know, and we apply you know the same stereotypes that we've been sitting here you know defying. Um, I have noticed, uh, and this actually is factual, uh, that that they don't work as much overtime. I mean, I know coming up through the years, I worked doubles all the time, and that was just what we did. And I'll tell you what, man, the the older generation in our police department, they chastise, you know, the youngins. They don't work the overtime. And and then I look at these guys and I'm like, yeah, and you're twice divorced and, you know, you're an alcoholic. Uh, so maybe <laughs> there's maybe there's something to the generation that has actually figured out what we never could work life balance. And I talk to so many young officers that say, I love my job. It's purpose-driven, uh, they're aligned to something bigger than th themselves, but they love their time off. And a lot of the men love contributing at home and to parenthood. So I, I think that this generation, we kind of give them, you know, a lot of flack and, you know, is the, you know, the, the egocentric generation, you know, but honestly, I think they, they're, they're really great contributors. And, you know, so I, I don't know that I've seen a lot of differences. I think that, you know, I think we tend to generalize when it comes to that. I think they're a lot older um, than what we were when we first got in. Um, they've, they've lived in 24 hour news cycles. They have the internet, they know people all over the world. They have, um, all of these different experiences that, that we never had because of technology. And so I think that they're kind of a little bit of older souls. Um, and they're, they're also kind of cynical, uh, especially the Gen Zers, the younger ones, because, uh, these folks, uh, have been raised in, war, recession, COVID, school shootings, um, you know, and all of those things. So they're just waiting for the next thing to, to, to happen, I think. And, you know, it bears out, especially with the Gen Zers. I mean, 12% of them were saving for retirement before they hit age 20. And, and so I think that they're, um, they're older uh, and, or they're older souls, I guess, is, is how I would say it. So I think they come with a little bit more uh, and it might be idealistic, but, but some life experience just because they've been, um, uh, exposed to more than what I was at least. And the other thing I will add with them is that they've always had an adult around them as opposed to like when I was a kid, you know, we went out at recess and 
did whatever we were going to do. This generation, the millennials and the Gen Zers, boy, they've they've always had that adult around. So they look at supervision as kind of their teammate or their coach. Um, and it's, you know, it's not Coach Johnson, it's Coach, you know, Jack or something like that. It's, it's, it's a very familiar uh, position or uh, relationship. So, you know, when I was young, the, the colonel in my organization was the colonel. I don't think he had a first name, right? Um, and then when I go up to talk to the academy as the colonel, uh, 20 some years later, um, it was, hey, Brenda, I got this idea about something that we could maybe do in the, you know, and it's like, oh, it, and I loved it because they'd actually communicate, which we never spoke to the colonel when I was younger. Um, and he's a really great guy. <laughs> so I think that that, that idea of team, we have to really understand the generations, what motivates them, how they interact and why they interact the way that they do and not be offended by it. Um, and then use that to make our organizations and our communities better. And I think that the, what we have to change is the mindset of the older generation, because like you said, they kind of like get uh, ragged on uh, or they rag on the younger generation because they don't work the overtime because they uh, they take days off. You know, oh, my God, I haven't taken a day a day off in uh, three years. You know, that's the older generation. And we said that proudly. Right. The newer generation is if I have time off, I'm going to take it. And if I want to do something with my family, I'm going to do it. You know, so they've kind of you have to kind of look at them, I think, in awe that they found kind of the the trick of balancing both worlds, uh, their law enforcement passion and their and their family passions. Right. Uh, they've also are into the technology, which we and law enforcement have been slow to arrive to using technology to our advantage, right? They, to them, they that, that's their life. Their life is all about technology. That's all they've ever known from the moment, basically, they, they had a little iPad put in their hand when they were five years old, probably, right? And at the same time, a lot of the newer generation, like we refer to in the homeland world about September 11 and about all, all these attacks, most of them were not even alive during that time, we have to, as the older generation, keep that in mind when we have certain expectations of them or we want them to understand the feelings that we're going through or the frustrations that we're going through is that they may not have them in the same mindset. They didn't live through that. They lived through different things. And yes, it's more of a team concept. It's more, it's not as formal. We're used to that formal law enforcement. You know, you never talk to the lieutenant, you know, it's like, morning, sir, you don't need, unless they address you, you don't address them. They're like, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing today? You know, it's a different world. I'm not saying one's better or worse, but I think somehow we have to fill that gap so that we can better communicate with them, better understand what they bring to the table because they do bring a lot to the table. They may not have the life experience that we've had, uh, but they bring other things to the table that maybe we don't and we don't understand. And I think bringing those two together, we're going to complement each other uh, to make our agency even better. But we have to embrace the differences because that's one thing that some of the older generations don't want to embrace those differences uh, before we can start building those bridges with those uh, generations so that we can hopefully get that uh, to improve our agency and our community. Because our community, we have to deal with them as well uh, and, and out there in the public. Uh, so it has to be something that we kind of open our mind to it and really try to understand them better so that we can see how we can better 
uh, serve them as well as a community and as our law enforcement um, partners. Yeah, I think, um, you know, to, to Brenda's point, I, I think I worked my first two divisions as a police officer and didn't even know where the captain's office was in the station. So there was no way. I mean, it was the principal's office. You did not want to go there. Um, you know, and, and now as a captain, I, I have officers that just kind of poke their head in and, you know, hey, Cap, you got a minute. And, and I find that refreshing. Um, I love the interaction. Um, I love being able to empower them and be open to their ideas, you know, and everything else. Uh, I think as a leader, you have to be very careful that you are not cutting your subordinate leadership off at the knees. So depending on what they're coming to you with, there are some things you have to push back and kind of say, hey, have you brought this through your chain of command? Have you given your supervisor an opportunity to fix this if it's one of those? So we have to be a little bit careful. But but for the most part, um, you know, again, being open, that's that's leadership 101. You know, I don't know everything. Um, and a 22-year-old cop could come to me with a brilliant idea. Um, you know, and and I, I think I first started seeing that probably really noticeably during the Occupy movement, when we have a, had a lot of people in my department in leadership roles where we were starting up, you know, we'd have task forces and stuff like that. And, you know, you were going to be the senior guy on the task force. You have to have proven yourself. You have to have, have all this breadth of experience and everything else. But when it came to technology, nothing was more valuable in a command post than some 24-year-old cop who could find anything on the internet. And we need to recognize that, that regardless of their lack of experience, you know, that generation is bringing a skill set to the table that is critical in today's law enforcement. Um, so, you know, TOJ or time on the job isn't always the best litmus test um, for an assignment, as much as I'm the first one to respect, you know, seniority and everything else. Um, but, but two things I do and as I mentor the younger officers, I try and kind of, you know, point this out um, uh, as something that might have to be overcome. Um, I have had people who have not been selected for positions whose primary response or rationale for why they should have been is, well, I've been here longer. Um, and, and I attribute that kind of to, you know, the whole... Um, participation trophy phenomenon of the younger generation. Um, it is still a competitive world. Law enforcement, by requirement and importance of our mission uh, as public safety, you know, it, it there needs to be a competitive process. We do need to ensure that we are picking the best people for, you know, the jobs. Round peg, round hole. You know, so the 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 weight in that is on our shoulders to develop and build potential. And then ultimately the best person is selected. You know, that that the the whole I've been here longer, you know, doesn't pass muster if you've been here longer accepting a paycheck every other Wednesday, but not really done much else. Um, and, and the only other thing I, I try and caution the younger generation about is as much as they are experts in, in technology and the internet and everything else, I have seen an unfortunate that, that an unfortunate result of that frequently is interpersonal skills. Um, and specifically as we start looking at people to promote into leadership and supervisory roles, that ability to I will say the word confront, but I'm not saying in, in, in to be confrontational. 
but that willingness to step up when something's about to go sideways and be able to say, whoa, 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 time out, guys. Um, we're going off the rails here. Or to take a, a, a subordinate out to the parking lot and have a come to Jesus conversation because that might put them back on the right track and could potentially save their career or a lot of embarrassment for the department. That is a requirement by our supervisor, especially in our critical role in society. And sometimes we need to work a little harder with the young, younger generation to develop that because they are so used to be able to, you know, type in all caps on Twitter um, to get their point across. And, and that doesn't work uh, as far as interpersonal skills go. So that, that's just a cautionary, you know, mentoring responsibility that I think we in leadership, you know, have to, have to confront and overcome. Sort of our wrap up questions. Um, how has working with the community changed over the last several decades? I think it's already been mentioned, but we've we've kind of come full circle. It's so interesting because when we look at the beginning of, of policing in history, you know, Sir Robert Peel, the police are are the community, and the community are the police. And somehow we got away from that, and we you know went to just the facts, ma'am. I'm just here to you know, to take the report. But I think that's already been spoken about, you know, uh, I think Brenda mentioned it is that we are now looking for, you know, root cause. We are here to problem solve and not just put a bandaid on things. And I think that um, all of the, the, the phrases that we use, you know, legitimacy and uh, relational policing, community policing, they're all just word salads, you know, and, and box checks to just truly going out there and, and determining, you know, teaching our officers to determine what is the best possible outcome, you know, and, and to put the mindset in them when someone calls you or flags you down, your, your initial mindset should be, I am here to help. How can I help and not harm? And I think that all of us, at least those you know who understand how to drive down crime in a community, um, also understand that that you can't do it without the community. You know, I, I mean, in most of in all of our departments, you know, we have you know x amount of number of police officers to the population, and we can't be all things to all people at the same time. You know, and so you know, it's just so interesting to me how you know, the police continue to do what is being asked of us. You know, they asked us to respond to homelessness, to mental health issues, to substance abuse, you know, to, to family problems. We have now then, you know, added training and resources to our officers, and they've actually become very proficient at these things. And now we're saying, stop, don't do that, you know? And so it's like, we keep adapting and, you know, but but I think as you boil it all down, you know, to what our, our function is, we are law enforcement. And the primary mission is to make our communities safe, to protect the people in, in who live and work and play in our communities. And I think that uh, that most people have recognized, realized that we cannot do it alone. And so we have to build those relationships in any possible way we can. And it requires building relationships in times of peace, period. When, when things, when the defecation is not hitting the oscillation is when we need to build relationships because that's when we'll have an army of people uh, that come right behind us that, that will help us solve the problems. Yes, I've always I've, I've always said that uh, we can't wait for a crisis to unite with our community. 
uh, that's the opposite uh, time that you're going to be involved in your community because uh, it's not going to work. You need to build those relationships. And I remember when I first started community policing was really a big thing in my agency. And, and I thought it was great. Um, I think that it's kind of a pendulum. You know, we kind of like get really involved and, and uh, things are going really well. And then kind of we get away from it uh, because of situations and circumstances that have happened. And then we kind of like hesitate. But I think that's when we need to jump in even further. Uh, and I know now with COVID, it's difficult because we we have a shortage of personnel. Uh, so it's harder to do those community outreaches uh, because of that. But I think it's more critical now than ever to get involved with the community, to build those relationships, uh, to kind of understand what their mindset of your community law enforcement is. Uh, because, yes, you have to accept whatever their beliefs are. They may not be real. They may not be truthful. But you have to accept it and understand it before you can change that mindset uh, for that for the community. And then on top of that, um, one of the things that I noticed, at least for me in law enforcement, I know this is a little bit of a different spin, is how has law enforcement and uh, dealing with the community changed me? And I think that's one of the things that we don't really talk to officers about a lot is that I am not the same person that I was 23 years ago when I started working. I was like, I'm going to change the world and I'm going to, you know, be able to do so many wonderful things and, and I'm going to like, you know, be a superhero. And then all of a sudden you get beat up when you see the realities of life and the reality of the things that are happening out there, uh, the victims uh, that are being victimized as subjects that 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 do you take to jail? I mean, I, I remember one day I had a young man that uh, he had just turned eighteen, unfortunately. Yeah, so he had been involved in the juvenile system for a while, and um, he just turned eighteen. So unfortunately, it was an auto theft situation that uh, we arrested him for. He had just had a baby with his girlfriend, and we it was like an hour traffic. And I talked to him the whole way over. And to me, it really broke my heart to think that this young man. Uh, now has a, a child that he's going to be raising, that he's going to be mentoring, he's going to be guiding, and all he's ever known really is the jail system. And now he's going to be as an adult there and not be able, that's going to stay with him the rest of his life. Uh, we had a very long, heartfelt, I still to this day remember him because he actually thanked me after I took him to the jail. You know, hey, thank you so much. You know, you really given me a lot to think about. You know, I really have to think about my, my little daughter before I do anything like this. You know, I gave him some ideas, some of resources to go. I mean, I don't know whatever happened with him. Unfortunately, there wasn't any, any follow up. But those are things that to this day, I still bring in. I wonder if he ever got his life together or if he's ended up in the system, his child ended up in the system. You know, so it's not just how the community has changed, whether they're embracing us at the moment, because there's times that they love us and we're all to them. And there's times that they can't stand us and they don't want even to talk to us. You know, they think we're, we're evil, uh, but also how this law enforcement changes people and we got to have to think about that too when we when we mentor uh our whether males or females is like don't let this job change you you have to stay who you are in your core you have to you can't bring it home with you because that happens as well they bring it home to their families uh so we kind of have to like not ignore that as a true uh reality that happens to people as well uh and i'm sorry i kind of took a different spin but I thought it was important to recognize that that does happen to officers uh, after a, even a few years of being out there on patrol. Yeah, and I think there's there's a recognition. I mean, one of the words that the the hot hot words in law enforcement and progressiveness today is shared responsibility. 
um, you know, that that law enforcement is inevitably, you know, a, an arm of the people. Uh, we will we will be the law enforcement agency or the police service that that, that society wants, um, and society will define our roles. And society right now is in the midst of redefining the role of law enforcement. Um, you know, and and to the extent that there are communities right now that are contemplating uh, the abolishment of their law enforcement agencies. Uh, so, you know, that, that, but that comes back to our willingness and our professionalism, in, regardless of our personal feelings, prejudices, animosities, experiences, or whatever, that, that we will enforce the laws, you know, uh, appropriately as set forth by the electorate, you know, through their elected government bodies. And, and that is a challenge right now. Um, there, you know, with the politicization, politicization of just about everything in our society. Um, but again, to, to, to Maggie's point of, you know, safeguarding the kind of the mindset of our younger officers and keeping them, you know, psychologically, mentally, emotionally healthy, um, and putting things in context, um, you know, don't lose yourself. You came here to do a, a an honorable profession and and to Kristen's point you know I I'm here to help what can I do to help provide the level of service that they would want their their family to be provided um you know within the the laws and policies set forth by by those that guide us um you know um, and I think that is in in today's environment that is one of the big leadership challenges in law enforcement quite frankly um, because things are, you know, I don't know about the rest of you, but I know in LAPD, there there tends to be a, a cops hate change. <laughs> cops tend to to graph certain sea changes. Uh, you know, they they can they can fight those a little bit, and and we need to guide them through those waters. Just to add, just a little bit onto that, I think one of the things that that um, I've seen a change in law enforcement is that we have been handed so many extra assignments. So instead of just doing the protect and serve, um, you know, now we're, you know, we are the response to mental health crisis. We are the, we are the, um, in our corrections areas, we're the ones handling mental health and substance use disorders simply because um, the states, the feds, the local agencies, the nonprofit, I mean, there's just not the money, there's not the commitment because in my opinion, there's not the political will behind it uh, or the political power behind it. It's not the thing that gets people elected. So um, as a result, it's all been pushed down to us. And, and now we're being told we're doing it wrong. Well, the thing of it is, is that we're doing it all. And, and we need that help from everybody. Um, if, if you don't want us doing these things, then, then people need to step up and fund the things that will not only just treat the issue, but actually prevent it from happening to begin with. I just like to think of it sort of like, if I can just add one more thing, is like we need to serve our community because really that's our role. Our purpose is to serve our community, but we can't do it at the cost of our troops because they are part of our community after all. You know, they live here, uh, their kids go to school here. This is their community as well. So we need to kind of find a way that we can uh, build that 
relationship and help to see the community see that. Because, you know, I think sometimes the community sees us as like this, you know, I don't, I don't know how best to say it, but like, we're not real. We, you know, you can't touch, feel us. We don't hurt. We don't bleed, you know, and when we do hurt and we do bleed, well, you know, it's our fault, you know, it's nobody else's fault, but our own. So we have to find some way of getting the community to see our troops as real people, a part of them, because they are a part of them. Uh, I just wish I knew that I had the solution for that. Um, but I think it's um, something that somehow we need to find out a way to, to humanize, humanize police work. I don't know if maybe that fits in is because we are seen as inhuman. So it's okay for them to get killed. It's okay for them to get hurt. Uh, but somehow we need to re remind the community that they are humans as well. They're the same as you. Sorry, that's my soapbox. <laughs> Thank you to Brenda, Shannon, Maggie, and Kristen for coming on the podcast to share their knowledge with us today. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.